Success Insight shares the stories of the people with passion and drive who make things happen in the world. Here's your host, Howard Fox. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Success Insight podcast. Our guest today is Gail Golden. Gail is a psychologist and executive performance coach who helps businesses build better leaders, teams, and organizations. Gail works with everyone from nonprofits to Fortune 1000s through her work. She has learned some key lessons about how to navigate the overwhelming demands of work, home, and everything else. Today, we're going to chat with Gail about her new book, Curating Your Life, Ending the Struggle for Work-Life Balance. Gail, welcome to the Success Insight Podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Gail, I am very excited, number one, because to our listeners in the spirit of full disclosure, I have known Gail for many years. She hosts a coaches roundtable here in Chicago every month. And just to be participating with her and the conversations we have and getting to know about her work, I can tell you the conversation today with her, plus learning about this wonderful book, Curating Your Life, you are going to appreciate it as much as I am. Okay. So Gail, I would love if you could share with our listeners before we get into the meat of the book, give them a little bit of the background about who you are and how your career has kind of been curated so far. Well, thank you again for the opportunity to be here talking with you today. The story of the book, well, first of all, the story of my career, way back more years ago than I care to admit, I earned a PhD in clinical psychology. I became a psychotherapist, ran a private practice for many years. Being a psychotherapist is very hard work. It took me a long time to get to be good at it. But after about 20 years, I began to feel a little stale in that work. And I had learned a lot about what makes people tick and how to help people to change. But I wanted to use that knowledge to start thinking about different kinds of problems. So I looked around for what else do psychologists do? And it seemed to me it would be very interesting to work with business leaders to help them use psychology to do their jobs better. But I had the good sense to recognize that if I wanted to do that, it probably made sense to learn something about business first. So I went back to school mid-career and earned my MBA and then went to work for a consulting firm for about five years, which was great work. I learned how to be a good consultant and how to build a consulting practice. And then started my own company in May of 2009, Gail Golden Consulting, and we've been in business ever since then. As I reflected on my career, it was very clear to me that the working as a psychotherapist with people who are struggling with really deep and troubling psychological issues and working with business executives who are working hard to be the best leaders they can be was very different kinds of work. We were focused on different kinds of problems, and frankly, the people were different kinds of people in many ways. But there was one problem which crossed right over from the first half of my career to the second half of my career. And that problem was that almost everybody was feeling overworked, overwhelmed, inadequate, and as if they were not living up to their own or other people's expectations. Looking back, was there a point in your career, perhaps in your prior life as a psychotherapist, where you too were feeling overworked and overwhelmed? Oh, no, never. <laughs> a lot, a lot. So I was trying to solve this problem in my own life. And actually, 
That's a great question, Howard, because what it leads to is what happened early on as I was struggling with this issue. I would look around at other people who seemed to me they had it all together. They had it figured out. Their work-life balance was just perfect, and they were doing all of these amazing things. Meanwhile, you know, I was feeling pretty much like a train wreck. And then one day I realized that there were people who were looking at me and thinking that I was one of the people who had it all together, which was a real shock to me. But people said things like that to me. So I thought, how could this be? Can't they see what a mess I am? And it led me to two other realizations. One is nobody's got this all figured out. Nobody's got a balanced life. Everyone is struggling with this. And what's going on is that we are comparing our own insides with other people's outsides. So I look at other people and they just, oh man, they got it all under control. And meanwhile, I can feel my own anxiety and my own stress and the fact that I haven't cleaned my oven in 17 years or whatever. And they're meanwhile looking at me and looking at my outside, which is pretty polished, and feeling inadequate themselves. And that's what we're doing to ourselves a lot of the time. It's almost as though we're all telling ourselves a story, not only for ourselves, but also stories that are being picked up by other people. And they're observing this, what they think is the story and perpetuating their own story as well. And it's almost as though we, none of us are stopping and saying, now, wait a minute here. How do I really feel? And why am I even looking at what somebody else is doing? I think it's, it seems very easy to look at someone else and compare yourself to how they're doing versus how you're doing. Well, that's true. And some people say, oh, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't compare yourself to others. And I feel like that's just one more way to feel like a failure because we do. We are social animals and we compare ourselves to other people to measure how well we're doing. So we're going to do that. But I think you're right. We can change the story of what we're saying to ourselves as we look at those other people who seem to have such immaculate lives and instead say to ourselves, well, good for them. They're doing a lot of things really well. But I bet you that just like me, they have their dirty little secrets, the things that they're not doing very well. I just can't see those things. As you transition into the business world, and I do have to acknowledge, I mean, you went back, you got your MBA. I sometimes wish I had gone and gotten mine. You know, our transitions are different, you know, for whatever reasons. And I was a recovering IT business consultant. And so I went into coaching. As you made this transition and you're taking with you this realization, everybody's got this story, we're all overwhelmed, we're all overworked. How did you then begin to, over the course of the second part of your career, lay this groundwork for what was soon to become this book, Curating Your Life? There are two things I'd like to comment in. One is that going and getting the MBA was in itself. I did. I wasn't talking about curating your life in those days, but it was an exercise in curation because I signed up for a full-time, very demanding academic program while I was still running my practice full-time, while I was attempting not to destroy my marriage in the process, and I still had one of my three sons at home. So at that point, I had to get very, very clear about what I was and was not going to do. One of the things was I reached out to my friends and said, I love you. I will not be seeing you for the next two years. Please bear with me. In two years, I will resurface and I will look forward to seeing you again. But I can't now. 
You must have been a bit of an anomaly back when you were getting your MBA because not a lot of career changes like that. At least I suspect there weren't. That's a good question. I think there are more and more simply because our careers are longer and longer. Now, yeah. Yes. I mean, I got my MBA in 2003. It wasn't like it was 100 years ago or something like that. But yes, I mean, I certainly was an anomaly in my MBA program. I was the only clinical psychologist who had ever gone through that program. That was an interesting experience. Then coming through the the MBA and setting up work and learning how to be a consultant, which was a very different game from what I had been doing in the first half of my career. But I began to recognize that while my new clients were very different from my old ones, there was this common issue that I was still hearing about. And over all that period of time, when I was a clinician and now as I'm a coach, we've been using this model of work-life balance, and it's not working. Trying to think about balancing our lives doesn't seem to be enabling us to live productive, fulfilling, meaningful, joyful lives. As I said, it leads most of us to feel, I think, that we're not cutting it. We're not doing it well enough. So I thought there's got to be a better way to think about this. And I started to think about the word curation and how it is that a museum curator, there are lots lots of different kinds of curation. You can curate a library or a concert or an art fair or whatever. But how does a museum curator curate that exhibit? And I thought, well, first of all, you better figure out what the exhibit is about. What is it designed to show? then you have to get pretty fierce about what goes into the exhibit and what doesn't. Because if you put everything, every item that might be in the exhibit in, you're going to have a cluttered mess, not something that speaks to people or that illustrates what it is you're trying to say. So there's a bunch of stuff that's beautiful and valuable that's not going to fit in the exhibit. And then the things that you do put into the exhibit that have to be part of your exhibit, some of them Yeah, they belong in the exhibit, but they're not the most important pieces. So maybe you're going to put them off in the side room somewhere where people can look at them if they want to, but they're not the main feature. And then you have the one or two or maybe three items, paintings, sculptures, whatever, that are the big deal pieces. This illustrates what you're trying to say in the exhibit that goes on the poster for your exhibit. Those things are really important. And I thought we can be doing the same process with how we spend our energy, how we allot our energy. That there are a bunch of wonderful, beautiful, good things that don't fit in the exhibit that is my life right now. Maybe they will later on. Maybe they did before, but they don't belong in my exhibit now, and I'm not going to do them. And then there's another bunch of things. And this is, for most people, the hardest part. They're going to be in my exhibit. They're going to be in my life but I'm just going to be good enough. I don't have to be great at those things. Just good enough. As I said, that's a really hard thing for many people. But if you do those things, you eliminate the things that just don't fit in your life right now, and you consciously choose to be mediocre at the things that are not of great importance, you then will have the energy to focus on your greatness on the things that you're passionate about, on the places where your talents lie and the things that you're you're meant to do. This is going to be your legacy. But you're not going to be able to do that if you're spending your energy on that other stuff. I have a question. You use the the word mediocre. And again, for our listeners, I've been fortunate enough to hear Gail start to talk about the evolution of the book. And it always struck me this word 
mediocre. And I, I had a guest last week. She was from the UK. And in the, in the US, we have layoffs. It's not a nice thing, but it happens. I get it. I understand the term. In the UK, the word was redundant. For some reason, that just grinds me the wrong way. The word mediocre elicits that same kind of response versus good enough. I love, I'm, I'm good with good enough. Why do you use the term mediocre? Um, I do it on purpose to, to shock people a little bit. You did. You shocked and, me. <laughs> yeah, okay. And to make people recognize, because what I say is, if you're honest with yourself, most of what you do in your life, you do mediocre. You do it like it's okay, but it's not great. Most of what we do, even if you're Leonardo da Vinci, there are things that you do, a lot of things that are just good enough. Maybe you're not a great cook. Maybe your housekeeping is just minimally adequate. Maybe you're not the best at staying in touch with all of your friends who live far away. Maybe you don't stay up to date on all the latest developments in your profession. You're mediocre in those things. Not terrible. You do them, but you do them just good enough. And I use the word because... We live in a cultural environment which tells us things like, if you can't do something all the way, then don't do it. Or the one of my pet peeves is, the good is the enemy of the great. And my reaction is, oh, no, no, no. The good is the friend of the great. Because if you let yourself be just good at a bunch of stuff, you'll have the energy to be great. How do you take this premise, this construct of what's important, what, what's the big deal, what has to be in versus what can be just good enough, you know, embrace that mediocrity. How do you take this construct and work with an executive? And, and also, let me, let me stop for one second. Mm-hmm. And I don't just mean the executive. I'm also thinking about everybody that reports down the chain from that executive, because these are equally important points for anybody in an organization who has responsibilities, even the call center associate. How do you take and turn this paradigm inside out or deconstruct it to help one individual or a group of individuals change this mindset for pursuing perfect. And if I'm not perfect, I'm not good. First of all, I would say it's really hard. Okay, The concept is simple. You know, the things I don't do, the things I just do mediocre, and the things I'm going to be great at. Sounds simple. Okay, go do that. It's not simple for all kinds of reasons. It has a lot to do with what we tell ourselves inside our heads. Things like, well, everybody else is managing to get it all done. Why can't I? Something wrong with me. Uh, Which goes back to that comparing my insights to other people's outsides. Quitters never win and winners never quit. Nonsense. You've got to quit a lot of stuff if you're ever going to be a winner. We have cultural norms and sayings that make this very tough. This is hard. It takes work. But I think we are going to be making these choices anyway. And either we're going to choose to try to be really perfect at everything, in which case we will not be very good at anything, or else we're making choices about this is where I'm going to put my energy and I'm not going to do those things and feeling guilty about that. And that guilt also takes energy away from living our lives joyfully and fully. So what I'm trying to offer is a way of thinking about this that minimizes the guilt and enables us to make those meaningful choices. What am I good at? What do I love? What's going to make a difference to the people around me? What is my exhibit about? 
And what are those things that really matter? And then what am I going to do about the rest of that stuff? I believe it sounds perfect. I get the model. It just, it, my sense is we have an uphill battle culturally with organizations to change that paradigm. I think you're right. And look, I think there are a number of things. One of the things I say in the chapter on mediocrity in my book is don't tell people, you know, the things that you decide you're just going to do well enough. You don't have to tell everybody about that. Just quietly go about it. If it's not good enough, then somebody's going to notice and they're going to say, hey, Gail, I need you to put more work into that. But a lot of the time, nobody's really paying attention. These are tasks that don't matter that much. So don't do it. You're supposed to write a report on the ABC project. So take five minutes to write the report, not five hours. It doesn't have to be superb. It just has to be good enough. It's those kinds of choices, deliberately choosing them and then not letting yourself feel guilty about them so that that four, four hours, you know, you can now use for, for work that really matters. It's interesting. I actually have a client that I'm working with. They are one of the departments of a big, global, very famous company. And one of the people in that department attended a talk I gave about this. And she came up to me afterwards and said, you know, something that's really interesting because my boss has created a system for us, which is almost identical to your system. And sure enough, when I talked to the boss, he had created three, what he called buckets for his people, work that is strategically important, work that is necessary, but not strategic, and work that is not necessary. And he had said to people, I want, don't want you to spend any time on the work that's not necessary. I want you to spend only 20% of your time on the work that is essential, but not strategic. And I want 80% of your time on the strategic work. Now, this was hard because this is a service department inside a corporation. So executives are coming all the time to that department and saying, hey, I want you to do this and I want you to do that. And people have to learn how to say to Mr. Big Fat Executive, no, not doing that. It's not the work I'm supposed to be doing. So again, the concept is easy. Making it happen, not so easy. One thing, it's crystal clear for me, these are going to be really fantastic conversations. What I love about the book, Gail, is I'm like anxious to take these back to my some my clients as well, because the organization that I work with as an internal coach, a lot of the staff are overwhelmed. They're constantly being compared against a model of whoever's the bottom 10%, 15% within the, the rating scheme. They're either put on a plan or they're out the door. And I think it's an opportunity for everyone to say or ask themselves, what do I want out of, what do I want to be? Who do I want to be? And I want to do things that I'm really passionate about. And, you know, if turns out, I guess, the role that they play in the organization, if they're not passionate about it and they don't feel it's as important as the organization, you decide you're going to learn how to fish and in, in in stay in the pond or you're going to go somewhere else. Well, that's right. Look, I think this is a very personal decision. I think everybody's exhibit is different. And what might be right for me, it may be not right for you. And look, it might be that in the exhibit of my life right now, keeping my job is a really, really important part of my exhibit that's necessary for who I am and what matters to me because I want to be able to take care of my kids and for whatever reasons. In that case, then doing the things that enable me to keep my job is of top importance even if they don't, frankly, thrill me to pieces, because that's what my exhibit is about right now. 
at another time in my life, I may be able to say, you know what, I don't want to keep this job as I did. I don't want to keep working as a psychotherapist for another 30 years. I want to do something else. So I'm going to continue to work as a therapist as long as I need to, but I'm going to take the steps to get myself out of here into what I want my greatness to be. I totally appreciate that sentiment because I I feel in my own unique way, that's what I did. I mean, as an IT business consultant, let's talk a little bit more about the book and how it's organized. You've got a number of chapters. Are you taking people through this model or process? The way the book is put together is the first chapter sort of outlines what the model is and why we need it. The next chapter is about figuring out what your values are, because I think knowing what your exhibit is supposed to be about is based on your values. And I have lots of examples from clients that I worked with and so on. Again, emphasizing this is unique to you. So for example, there's a contrast there of one guy for whom it's really important to feel that his work is making a difference to the world. And, and he has to feel that his work has that kind of impact. And he's willing to work really hard, really long hours in difficult situations for that value. Another client grew up poor, and she never, ever wants to be in a situation of need again. So for her, it's really important to make lots of money so that she can feel financially secure for the rest of her life. And she's willing to work long hours in difficult situations, you know, at work that is not always, you know, fun, if she gets paid a whole bunch of money. Now, I'm not going to say one person is right and the other person is wrong. What I am going to say is you need to know that about yourself. Because if you put the woman who needs to make lots of money into the high impact job, which doesn't have a big salary, or the guy who needs high impact into a, you get paid half a million dollars a year. The exhibit is not right for them. So figuring out your values becomes a really important first step in this. And I have techniques to help people learn how to do that. Once you've got that, then the next chapter is about saying no, which many of us are not very good at. That's hard. Very hard. You know, we're all good at saying no to things that like we totally think are stupid and a waste of time. Somebody asks me, do I want to contribute to a recipe book written in Klingon? The answer is no. That's just not something I have any interest in or skill in or connection to. doesn't mean it's a bad idea. It's just not right for me. The hard thing is when it's things that are beautiful and valuable and important, and I have to say no to those things. Um, A good example of that is when your first child is born, and there are all kinds of things you've been doing in your life that are really important. You have to say no to a whole bunch of stuff. Or when I was running my practice full-time and going to school full-time, I stopped cooking. I love to cook. I said to my husband, if you want to eat for the next two years, you're going to have to do the cooking. And he said, yes. Saying no is is a difficult task, both in terms of what's going on in our own head and in terms of the social skill of how you do that. The next chapter after that is about embracing mediocrity and how you actually let yourself be less than great, consciously choosing to be just good enough at stuff. Then following on that is choosing your greatness, figuring out what is it that needs to be those main things in your exhibit. What, what's that about? And it can't be 17 things. Nobody has room for that in their exhibit. One, two, or three. Following that is the chapter about once you've chosen your greatness, how do you live your greatness? How do you actually make that come to pass? And there's a piece in there, for example, about 
procrastination about even though this is what I've decided I'm going to do, I find I'm not doing it. You know, I'm choosing to fritter away my time and my energy on other things. How do you self-manage so that you actually go after the thing you've decided is what you want to do? There's a chapter about curating your workplace, because when you are in a leadership role, I think you have a responsibility not only to curate your own life, but to create an environment which facilitates your team members to curate theirs. And there are some specific skills around that. Sorry, did you want to say something? I was going to say that to me is a wonderful conversation. And I think helping, coaching those leaders to understand the concept, but also how to start to have it with their team, I think is a great way to help that culture adapt. Yeah, I mean, the simple things is not sending people emails at two o'clock in the morning, right? I mean, because it sends a message that I expect you to be on all the time. And very few workplaces do people have to be on all the time. So there are just tactics in there for how to manage your workplace. The chapter after that is about curation in the home and how you curate life with your partner if you have a partner, how you curate life with your kids if you have kids, all these different circumstances in which we bring some of these tactics into our homes. There's a chapter on re-curation because nobody's curation lasts forever any more than a museum exhibit stays the same forever. You have to reevaluate maybe something that used to be on your greatness wall now is of secondary importance and something else becomes the center of your exhibit. And then the last chapter is what I call busting loose. Curation is a form of discipline. It's tough. It means making very conscious choices and then living with those choices. And everybody needs to break the rules once in a while. The trick is to find ways to let yourself break the rules without destroying the entire exhibit, how to be what I call a little bit bad. And that's what the final chapter is about, is how to figure out how to be a little bit bad so you can then go back and carry on with your curation. Fantastic. And as a coach, I would be remiss, Gail, if I didn't ask you, is there a tool or a a model or kind of a to-do item, work item in the book that will help the reader begin to at least to think about this process of this and the decisions that they want to make? There are two things that come to mind. Within the book, there are lots of tools, free online tools, psychological assessments that you can take, books to read, frameworks to think about. This is a good thing to ask your friends about, you know, all those kinds of things. I've also created just a little survey, which is available on my website, to help people figure out which piece of curation are you likely to have the most trouble with. Is it saying no? Is it being allowing yourself to be mediocre? Is it figuring out and living your greatness? Where is your challenge likely to be? Word of word to the wise, this is not a scientifically designed survey. It's just a, a simple self-assessment tool. But it helps people to get an initial sense of where they need to pay most attention. Fantastic. Gail, two more questions. Your experience writing this book, what did you learn about yourself coming out of this process. I mean, you know, for, again, for our listeners, this podcast is going to get published probably towards the end of April. We are in 2020. We're right in the middle of this global crisis, this pandemic. A lot of things change. And, you know, I know your life as a, as a published author and, you know, how you get out there, promote the book and write about the book, speak about the book is evolving. You have to learn to adapt. 
But overall, what has been your lesson to yourself? What have you learned about yourself as you went through this process to curate this book? That's a good question and not one that I've been asked. So I have to think for a moment. What comes to mind, which is perhaps not the most useful answer, is I learned I really love writing a book, which I didn't think was the case. The last long thing I had written was my dissertation for my PhD, which I hated. It was a horrible experience. So I sort of thought, okay, I like writing short things. I like writing articles and blogs and things like that, but don't ask me to write another long thing. And I did this really because a consultant said to me, Gail, for your practice, for your business, you need to have a book. And in fact, my first stab at writing a book was a different topic, which was the wrong topic for me. And I found that I procrastinated and didn't do the writing. And it was only when I found the topic that I was passionate about that I was able then to get the discipline to write the book. So I suppose that was a really powerful life lesson for me is if you're trying to make yourself do something that's the wrong thing, you're probably not going to do it very well or with very much energy. When you find the thing that is right for you, it flows. That doesn't mean it's not hard, but it flows. It is its own reward. And that's a very powerful experience. Fantastic. And, you know, I, I had alluded to a second question, but then I realized you've kind of answered it when you, you, you've shared a few stories of some of the individuals who have been at your speaking engagements. Perhaps you shared the, uh, the book before it was published with maybe a potential client to get their feedback as the client. But looking at the kind of the overall Okay, book is out there. What kind of feedback are you getting now about the book, about the content and its usefulness, where we are today? Well, most people are being very nice. So, I mean, I, I haven't had anybody who, who trashed it and said, oh, man, this is a piece of garbage. Don't waste your money. When you go out into public, you've got to expect that some of that is going to happen. And I will pull the covers over my head and cry when that comes to pass. But no, I think the response that I've been getting is very affirmative in that the same thing that I've said we're all struggling pe- with, people are saying, yeah, that's right. And this is indeed a new and useful way to think about it. When you think about balance, it's something that you have to do constantly. If you're standing on a tightrope, you've got to be rebalancing every second second. But curation, an exhibit, could be the same for a year or two before you have to reevaluate it. It is an easier process. I think it makes, it resonates for a lot of people. They say, yeah. And so, so far, um, the responses I've been getting from clients, from colleagues, from friends who've been reading it is, has been very positive. Fantastic. Gail, if our listeners would like to learn more about you and your work, and obviously to pick up a copy of Curating Your Life, where are the best places for them to go? Sure. Well, to learn more about me, the best place is my website, which is gailgoldenconsulting.com. Gail is G-A-I-L, Golden Consulting. There's a lot of blog posts that I've written and other things, and there's a page about the book, including the survey, by the way. So if you want to take the survey, you can take it there. And in terms of the book itself, it's available on Amazon and on other bookselling websites. It is out now and people are getting copies. I think the Amazon delivery is a little delayed currently because of the fact that they seem to think for some unknown reason that there are other things that they might be delivering that are more important than my book. I cannot imagine what those things are. Um, 
But yes, it, you can order it, and it's available both in hardcover and in an ebook. So either version is available for purchase. Fantastic! And you are also on. Uh, I know you are on LinkedIn, obviously. Oh, that's and right. Twitter. Yes, LinkedIn, Twitter, Golden Coach is the handle, and LinkedIn is Gail Golden Consulting. I'm happy if people want to reach out and make contact. That would be great. Fantastic! And you are also open to you know speaking engagements and coming and sure. Uh, Sure. And I, and you know, all kinds of things. I mean, I give keynote addresses in major conferences and I also meet with, you know, book groups that have 10 people in them and everything in between, especially right now when we're all, you know, in the midst of the crisis and on Zoom, uh, you know, meeting with people doesn't require any transportation. And so it's simple to arrange those things and happy to do that. That's fantastic. And we will most definitely will provide backlinks to the website, also to the self-assessment that's on the website, Twitter, LinkedIn, and also the book pages on Amazon and you know the other book sites. Gail, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Success Insight podcast and to chat about your book, Curating Your Life, Ending the Struggle for Work-Life Balance. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. It was really fun. Fantastic. All right, folks, we have just been chatting with Gail Golden. Gail is a psychologist and executive performance coach, and she is the author of Curating Your Life, Ending the Struggle for Work-Life Balance. And, you know, just know curating your life means you can succeed at the things that really matter to you. And what a great way to start. And whether it's holding the book in your hand or electronically, it's a wonderful conversation because, you know, as Gail had suggested, you know, work-life balance, we talk about it, but in, in reality, it doesn't exist. And we have to make decisions about what is valuable to us and what we want and these decisions, what's important versus not important and what can be good enough and what are we going to sit, learn to say no to? So really some wonderful material and good good places for conversation, perhaps, you know, with your loved ones, with your manager your or even your coach. So do go out and get a copy of the book. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please comment on it at our website, successinsightpodcast.com. We'll also have a link to the podcast on our LinkedIn page, Facebook page, Success Insight Podcast. We will have this uh, podcast episode published on all of the major podcast platforms, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on YouTube. Lots of places to listen to the to Gail and hear her describe you know, the importance of curating your life. So folks, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, go out there. Have a very safe, phenomenal day, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Success Insight Podcast. Take care now. Success Insight is a production of Fox Coaching and First Story Strategies. Find us online, successinsightpodcast.com.